Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Hello and welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 20th. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm again joined today by Josh Blank, research director of the very same Texas Politics Project. Josh, how are we on this week of the pandemic? You know, I guess, okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to say anything other than okay, I guess. <laughs> Doing fine, better than many, could be right. better. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, today we want to talk about uh, partisan politics and, and the political system a bit more and you know, this podcast often talks about those things quite a lot, but in the midst of the pandemic and all the unusual circumstances, we haven't really done a ton of that kind of business as usual uh, this, you know, for the last couple of months, really, since we've been doing this again. It's funny because, uh, like, on the one hand, there's all these things that we'd almost say are, are non-political, and yet it's almost like everything's political. And so, I mean, we've the the the, the mere politics that we normally talk about has been pushed aside for like the global pandemic economic crisis race politics we have been talking about. Yes. Is a, it has a little bit of the feel and not that you know electoral politics are not important but in terms of some of the more into the weeds uh internecine things that we often talk about the the very detailed intercoalitional politics and and deep reads of what might be going on and what might be happening you know the the sense of overall structural crisis seems to make that feel a little bit like the deck chairs on the titanic that said um today <laughs> we uh we want to return to electoral politics a bit and we we flagged some of this last year i mean we recorded the last podcast on the day of the runoff elections and this is one of those you know, pandemic quarantine time things. I mean, it feels to me like that election was a month ago. It felt that way at the end of last week. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, as I as I was thinking about what we should talk about today, I was like, yeah, I guess I guess that's only been a week, and we never did get back to that. Although we had written about it a bit, and that could be just the subjective experience of us talking about it a lot. So let's talk about the election, and and we want us really focus at least at the beginning on. The U.S. Senate race, uh, the Demo the race for the Democratic nomination, which had come down to a runoff between M.J. Hager, or actually M.J. Hagar, Comptroller Hager, M.J. Hagar. I have to keep reminding mm, myself. Okay, I'll do my best. Who beat Royce West in the runoff, and uh, M.J. Hagar was or is um, somebody who's not served in statewide office, but had run as a candidate in 2018 in a congressional race in which she came relatively close but failed to unseat uh, a multi-term Republican congressman in John Carter in the area north of Austin. Um, Royce West, multi-term Democratic state senator from the Dallas area. Um, and the outcome was 
much closer than people expected. Hager with a little over 52% of the vote, almost 500,000 votes, 498,000-odd. West finished with 47.9%, um, about 457,500 votes. You know, so total votes in that in that runoff will put at 955, 735, and put a pin on that and come back to it. Um, but this has been a, a, an odd race that, for all its importance, and of course the winner in this race will now be the Democratic candidate to face uh, incumbent John Cornyn, who is pretty favored going into this. Um, but the backdrop of this race is, you know, this has been kind of the dog that didn't bark for much of the campaign in the sense that as important as it is, it really didn't get a lot of attention. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think, well, I mean, like I said, it didn't get a lot of attention from the public. It got a lot of attention from elected officials and it got a lot of attention, I think, from, you know, the national party organizations and sort of groups that are really focused on electoral politics. But in some ways, I mean, it's kind of funny now. I mean, you sort of said maybe you did this on purpose, but the conversation we had at the top here kind of reflects what happened to this race. You had a bunch of Democrats jump into the race early. And usually what you can find, I mean, so I've said this to other people too, is, you know, they say, you know, people call us all the time from various news outlets and say, well, how competitive is Texas? You know, how competitive is that Senate race? And I think I agree with you, you know, Cornyn is still the favorite, but I always say, you know, well, look at what the candidates are doing. And ultimately this Democrat, this race to be the Democratic nominee originally had, I believe, 11 candidates in the field. And really, you know, for the most part, I would say, you know, there's a couple couple odd ones in there, but, but but for the most part, pretty high quality candidates. But then that created the part of the challenge, which was, you know, how do you separate yourself in a field of 11 candidates where, you know, four or five of them could end up being the nominee when it started and then throw into that, you know, a national political environment that's very noisy and makes it very difficult to focus on, you know, even as localized a race as a state's as a Senate race, right? But then combined on top of that, the pandemic, you have a weird election calendar, you have a bunch of candidates who are trying their best in a huge state with a bunch of expensive media markets to introduce themselves to voters. And it's always a challenge for Democrats, but I would say it was yeah. an even bigger challenge this time. Well, no, the, you know, and no, and while there were a lot of talented candidates in that race, there was nobody with the possible exception of, you know, former congressman and gubernatorial candidate Chris Bell that had name-wide you know, statewide name recognition well you're you're right you're um, right nope nobody who is Beto o'rourke or or one of the castros right, right. I mean, so ultimately so uh, you know as we look at the outcome of this race and you you look at the the county well before we get to the details i guess i mean you know so it, it turned out that given all that mj hagar was largely seen as the favorite for much of that race which was in I mean, part in part because of that, that run against um, uh, against John Carter, and in part because fairly early she was, you know, she gained a lot of outside support. Most importantly, from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the you know national level campaign pact directed by, you know, with lots of money to direct money into uh, Senate races, and yet if you look at those totals in the end, that race wound up being you know, much closer than what polling there was suggested it might be, though, you know, all along, 
you know, as a function of the lack of attention to the race, there were huge numbers of undecideds and huge numbers of people that didn't know who either candidate was. And by huge numbers, you know, in our June poll, we were still in the range of 50% of people saying they didn't have either a favorable or, or an unfavorable view of each candidate. So when we look at the outcome, you know, it, it was less lopsided than I think people expected. And so we're all left kind of searching for what the cause of that is, or hypothesizing about what the cause of that is, given the limitations on the data that we're going to have. Right. I mean, I think, you know, ultimately in most things, expectations are so important about evaluating the reality. And Hager had basically entered the race basically with a strategy that seemed to focus on the, or that really tried to elevate the idea that she was the front runner. Ultimately, she didn't focus too much on her Democratic primary opponents until really she got into the runoff with Wes and really only at the end of that. She had been focusing on Cornyn from the beginning as if she was the Democratic nominee. She yeah. got endorsement and money from, as you said, the, the DSCC, the, the sort of national Democratic organization trying to elect Democratic right. senators early on, much to the chagrin of the other 10 people in the race. Uh, so then you have to weigh sort of that set of expectations against, you know, the reality of, a, of, a, of an almost split decision runoff. But then I also find, you know, and this is sort of something we've been talking about is you also have to balance that against the fact that it was a runoff in the middle of July. And though it had high turnout for a runoff, which we'll get to, it's really not a large share of voters. I mean, we're really talking right. about a sliver of the electorate making this decision. And we're really talking about, you know, each candidate's ability to mobilize again a very small share of democratic voters ultimately right i mean in the end uh, you know for all the you know there was a lot of time you know look relative to other runoffs as you say turnout was high right surprising at the end, so. what we mean by high turnout is five percent about five percent i think was the the final right now five plus percent of total registered voters right right which puts you again which you know again for texas normally a low turnout state most people who voted in a Democratic runoff since 1990, right? Right. So, I mean, it's a lot of people for a Texas runoff, but Texas runoffs are low turnout affairs. And I think, you know, if anything, you know, the one thing I think that, you know, you have to balance here is, you know, there's a desire to sort of say, boy, you know, where did Hager perform well? You know, well, she performed well around Travis County in the urban centers, you know, more, more west, you know, in West Texas. You know, West performed, you know, not surprisingly well, but... I'm sorry, I should say, West performed uh, well, unsurprisingly, in Dallas, his, his right. home political base, which was kind of always expected, but he also performed really well in, in uh, Harris County, which was a bit of a surprise, I think. For yeah, some well, I you mean, know, I, I, would, I would disagree with that. I mean, to the extent that I, I wasn't that, so I actually think that one of the reasons he didn't do better was that he didn't perform better in Harris County. I mean, he... He won relatively narrowly, but if you look at the, you know, and this gets to, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this race and points to some of the, you know, the underlying kind of structural factors brewing in the electorate at large and particularly in the Democratic Party, right. is that if you look at a county level map, West did best in the counties by and large with larger black populations, mm -hmm. even allowing for the fact that he did, he was going to do well in North Texas in the DFW area mm -hmm. where... He's more well-known. He has a political base. He has access to political machinery, all of those things. But it's really striking to see, you know, if you look at the map of 
you know, just who won what counties. It's just a swath of North and East Texas makes up the vast majority of where West won and got most of his votes. And I think, you know, there's still kind of an open question to me, you know, that, you know, you know, we'll see about just how the rest of the Democratic Party shook out. I mean, a lot of attention to the fact that, you know, Hagar, Hagar won the counties where there's the most attention, you know, from both the outside and in the internal politics of the Democratic Party. And that is, you know, she won all of the majority, you know, most of the, the, the majority Latino counties or mm -hmm. Latino counties, the largest numbers of the counties, are the largest numbers of Latinos. Um, you know, but, you know, like what did the white, you know, what were white liberals really thinking here in terms of how they digested Hagar's, Hagar's image, um, the way that she deployed her, you know, um, military veteran, you know, white mom image. Right. And I, you know, I, I think there are some, some sensitive, but very important questions that are lurking there as we watch this campaign go forward. And it began to surface at, at the end of the campaign and that final half hour, or maybe it wasn't the final, but the the final televised, I think, half hour debate that West and Hagar did, they got the, Hagar did, they got the most out of that half hour because they aired out the negative images of the other. And, you know, one of those points that West, way, that West raised was that Hagar had voted in the 2016 Republican primary and she never did really give an answer to that very well, to my mind. Right. I mean, other than some convoluted, it was a protest vote for Carly Fiorino, which really kind of doesn't make any sense. But at any at any rate, you know, that is kind of brewing here. And I think the, the question is, or one of the questions is, you know, Hagar presented as one of a kind of ideal model of candidate Mm -hmm. that was very prominent in the 2018 election. That is um, non-political professional, military background, Moderate. female, Ish. white, mom. Yeah. And that, you know, was, you know, kind of a very popular model, shall we say, in 2018, mm -hmm. particularly for running in competitive transitional districts or states, districts like the Carter District, um, states theoretically like Texas. Now with the pandemic going on and a market perhaps for more government expertise and the post-George Floyd racial environment, is that model still, given the factors in the Democratic coalition, is that model still model for the moment? And well, I don't well, know. And I go even further than that. I'm not even sure it's the model for Texas. I mean, when I think about you know, I'd have to think a little bit more deeply about uh, the House seats that flipped here in 2018 from Republican right. to Democrat. But when I think about, you know, the congressional seats that flipped from Republican to Democrat, it wasn't the Democrats were running, you know, basically a bunch of moderate to center left, you know, veteran white female right. mobs, right? I mean, technically, you know, I think that what's, I mean, this has been an ongoing, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of different conversations that intersect right. here in an interesting way, right? I mean, one, this lines up with the Democratic choice for the presidential nominee. There's a question going into the Democratic primary here in Texas, right. the original one about, you know, essentially, does does Texas become more competitive with, with someone like a Joe Biden at the head of the ticket or someone like a Bernie Sanders? And that's purely based on ideology, and it does 
dovetail with what you're saying here, you know, a desire for a more robust government response versus this idea of, you know, can you attract away basically moderate white voters from the Republican party to make yeah. the Democratic party more competitive in Texas? But this has been, but this dovetails again, I think with an ongoing conversation about what is, what is the path that the Democrats follow to get out of the political wilderness here? By which I mean, they haven't won a statewide race in over 20 years. They're, you know, clawing at potentially, you know, being even with the number with Republicans and the number of seats in the state house, but they're not going to have a majority of uh, state Senate seats are not going to have a majority of the congressional right. seats. So they're trying to get competitive. And there's been this ongoing discussion of, you know, does tech just do, does the Texas Democratic Party become more competitive by riding a wave of, of increased turnout among young Texas voters uh, who by and large are non-white and are more progressive ideologically, more progressive yeah. ideologically and are, and are incre- you know, and then secondarily, there's this other sort of line where he says, no, you know, the Texas Democratic Party becomes more competitive once they start appealing to moderate white voters better. And part of the idea right. is they can't lose as badly as they're losing with white voters and still be competitive. Well, and again, this is a conversation that's been going on in Texas for, you know, a very long time, probably, you know, you know, it's it commenced almost the moment that the, you know, the, the Democrats sort of lost you know, their hold on the state and has been ongoing. But, you know, the, you know, how does that discussion match the shifts in the underlying terrain? So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, all of these are questions then that apply not just to the, you know, to the, to the West Hagar, or to the Hagar Cornyn race, or even to the, all those congressional races, they're the backdrop for that. But also this larger question of just how competitive is Texas is really kind of, right. this is kind of the how you sustain that competition or the conversation we're, we're having so far. But I mean, let's talk a little bit before we, we go about what the terrain looks like. I mean, the, you know, obviously the most national interest is in the presidential race. Right. You know, as we see a you know national trend line where, in which Biden seems to be leading fairly consistently, if I think you know probably in both our views deceptively in national polling. Right. Um, but there's also been attention to you know polling in the state that shows the state shows that race. Let's put it that way. You know, a single digit race and. You know, with with Trump leading most polls, other than you know an out, you know what I would consider an outlier here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you, you know, I mean, so I, you know, the, the the question I think is, you know, what is one's expectation of the presidential race, and how would we know at this point? And you know, I think, you know, one point is that you know you're not going to know at this point, right? Well, you can't. I mean, I think in assessing Texas's competitiveness, there's there's two sides to that coin. I mean, there's no doubt that Texas has become more competitive over time as the you know the electoral results at the top of the ticket have gotten tighter. We saw Greg Abbott beat Wendy Davis by about 20 points in 2014. We saw Donald Trump beat uh, Hillary Clinton by about nine points in 2016. We saw Ted Cruz beat Beto O'Rourke by about two and a half points in 2018. Now, does this mean we're on, you know, basically a march towards democratic victories in Texas? No, but I think it would be hard to look around, look at those results, look at the congressional results, look at what happened in the state house, uh, in 2018 and say, Texas isn't more competitive than it was five or six years ago. But in terms of answering this question about whether Texas is going to be competitive in the 2020 presidential election, 
I think you really have to look to see whether the candidates themselves perceive it that way. And if they perceive it as worth spending money and their time in over other states or in addition to other states that are generally considered, you know, essential to, to clinching the nomination, states like North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin. So ultimately, that's I mean, you know, presidential contests are really fought out over a handful of states. And Texas hasn't really I don't think they've moved into that column yet, both because one, a Democrat hasn't Democrats haven't had that really much success here statewide to speak of, except for doing less bad. But also, it's a really expensive proposition. And unless right. both Multiple media and, markets, lots of things, you know, lots of places you have to spend money. I right. Think, so I think so unless right. Biden's I mean, going to decide to do that, you know, I just don't I, I wouldn't say they're ceding Texas to, to, to Donald Trump. But I think, you know, there are probably other states that they would start adding before they'd add Texas. And well, and, and, I, and I think the footnote to that is, you know, that, you know, every time a Democratic campaign invests anything in Texas for the lot for this cycle, really for the last couple of cycles, you know, it, it's almost worth it to them to to do, you know, some low six figure ad buy or yeah. or up investment because it generates this big discussion, this big media discussion. And, you know, I mean, the idea is probably to try to at least bait the other side into making sure that they, you know, the, the Republicans into making sure that they continue to spend money. And so, you know, there is another, there's a sub tactical level as people watch mm -hmm. what's going on there. And I think, you know, as frankly, as long as the press falls for that or some big faction of the, the, the political press falls for that and headlines the buys, Democratic campaigns will continue to do that, you know, as, as, yeah. as long as, as long as it fits into that, that strategy. And I think one of the, you know, but, and then one of the interesting things here is how, you know, even, even if we stay on the line of that, you know, that you sketched out of, you know, where the vote totals sort of keep going down and there's, you know, the, the, the top of the ballot margin continues to shrink. You know, I mean, two things about that. One is that there are cross currents there that the same year that, uh, Ted Cruz won by two and a half points over Beto O'Rourke. Greg Abbott won by 14. Mm -hmm. um, now, there was some bleeding out below him in some of those races where people that were used to, to winning by double figures, you know, won by only single figures. But there's a lot of mixture there. But I mean, I think, you know, it, then if we think, though, about the linkage without making big assumptions about coattails, but making some extrapolations about what it means for turnout mm -hmm. if a democrat was to if joe biden is to make it specific is to lose say he loses by somewhere between the o'rourke margin of two and a half and the clinton uh margin of eight and a half where he which i think is pretty plausible at this yeah, point yeah i would be given, i'd be happy to i'd say five yeah, yeah, you know, if you're in there, you know, but if he, so if, you know, if you take your five, you know, split the difference, I think you kind of have to assume, and I think the people looking at this right now, you know, and again, it's just prognosticating right now, but, you know, you're not just making it up. If you look at, you know, the kind of candidates that came out of the runoffs, if you look at what the campaign finance patterns look like, if you look at, mm -hmm you know, the competitive districts in the state at the legislative and congressional district. And it's like, you know, Jeff Blaylock has been doing this. 
others. You know, Blaylock is a runs a website called Texas and service called Texas Election Source. Um, you know, it's plausible. I mean, I think you're seeing a general sense that even if the margin shrinks like that at the presidential level, you'll see another cycle with Democratic gains. You know, and you know, whether that's some kind of an earthquake or not, I mean, I kind of doubt it, but I also think there's still a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of water to flow under the bridge before we actually get to the election. And so, you know, but, it, but, I, but I think, you know, that is the nuance of thinking about Texas being more competitive, I think, that, you know, if you look, if you focus on one level or, you know, one set of races, you kind of miss the overall systemic evolution that's going on here. Yeah. And I would say it goes both ways. I mean, I, you know, I think in, in 2018, there was a bit of a, a rush to, to sort of crown O'Rourke with all the success that Democrats, uh, enjoyed in that race. And again, relative to past failures, but that included, you know, picking up a number of state house seats, picking up some congressional seats, again, decreasing the margin by which Republicans won, really at, at various levels of the ballot. I always, you know, feel like, but there are other aspects. You're not going to say something bad about Bitter O'Rourke, are you? No. Okay. I, would, I, would, I don't want the, I don't need the hate mail. Um, I've said, I've I shouldn't said more say than, bad. Less I, than I was, adoring. You're not going to say gonna, something less than adoring about Bitter O'Rourke, are you? I was going to say, I've said more than enough things less than adoring about Bitter O'Rourke at this point. So that's not the point of this. But I mean, the point I wanted to make was, you know, Beto was a really strong candidate. I think, you know, you brought up the Greg Abbott margin against Lupe Valdez, and you can see what difference a, a well-resourced, really honestly, like a high-quality candidate, uh, you know, can do relative to someone who really, you know, probably shouldn't have been running statewide, to be fair. Um, you know, there's a difference there, ultimately. But also, the other thing is, it's a different Democrat. I mean, when I think about the, you know, this question about competitiveness in Texas, it's also a different Democratic Party. And, and you've, you've brought this up a couple times, and this has stuck with me, too. You know, the extent, I mean, the idea of an MJ Hager running for a seat, failing, and then turning around and running again, right away. The fact that, you know, a guy like uh, Mike Siegel, who came within five points of Representative McCall, runs again, doesn't even make it through the Democratic runoff. Uh, because someone else came in who wanted to take on that seat. I mean, what you're seeing there is both, you know, Democratic candidates, again, committed to turning seats, which is important because ultimately you run an election, you may fail, but you know, well, does, you it doesn't even, just to make sure you were right, doesn't avoid a runoff uh, with Siegel. Well, no, Pritesh Gandhi was in the runoff and then beats and then beat Siegel in the runoff. He doesn't okay. avoid the runoff, but then Pritesh Gandhi won the runoff, right? And now he's running against McCall, I believe. You can check that. But the main, you know, but the point here is that the idea of someone like, you know, again, a Siegel going, running in a congressional seat, making all these contacts, building up his voter list, and then actually doing it again, almost immediately is something that the Democrats can count on. And I think to the extent, as much as De Texas Democrats benefited from O'Rourke's candidacy, which they did in spades, the other side of it is the fact that O'Rourke benefited from Democrats actually competing in most state house, most state Senate seats all the congressional seats. There were campaigns on the ground in all these counties that Better Work may have visited 254 counties, but he couldn't visit them all at once. Right. And so Before we get too far on this, I just want to flag. Siegel won that. Oh, Siegel did win it? Okay. Yeah. My bad. But even so, that's even better for the argument then, I'll say, right? <laughs> of course. Which is the, well, great. It's even, that's even better than what I thought. No, but that's the point, though. But you have no, a strong the point candidate. Is, yeah, 
strong candidate comes back and wins again and now is going to basically do something that he's done before. It makes him a stronger candidate, right? And that's something the Democrats couldn't count on really for a long time that they can now. And it makes the party more competitive, even absent, you know, the presidential level stuff we all focus on. And I just, just one thing I want to say about the presidential race is, you know, Joe Biden doesn't need to win Texas to become president, but Donald Trump can't lose Texas. Right. And so there's a bit of an asymmetry here in terms of how each would approach the race, how the state, you know, and how the state party would approach it. And they're just, again, it's not exactly the same thing. Whereas, you know, a state like Wisconsin or Michigan, they're both looking at that thinking, I need to win this state to win the, the presidency. Right. And that's a big difference, I think, in terms of thinking about competitiveness. Yes. Um, yeah, and I and I think you know we've talked. I mean, to the to the point about you know who's running for what and MJ Hagar moving up to the Senate race and Siegel's success. You know, this is you know for years Democrats have talked about how they don't have a deep enough bench. The bench is getting deeper, mm -hmm. and whether people will you know what decisions people make in that context going forward. Um, that's another facet of the competitiveness. You know, as we you know for years we've talked about you know, what the Democrats lacked in terms of their ability to become competitive and candidate recruitment was one of the, was a big factor. And, you know, depend, you know, we'll see how long it takes for that to really cycle through. I think we're already seeing some of the benefits of better candidate recruitment and just more candidates, you know, mm -hmm. competing for more races. Um, that's, that's been contributing to all that. I think we're going to wind it up there. Uh, we will be back next week. Thanks to Josh. Thanks to our crew in the liberal arts development studio at the University of Texas at Austin. And we will be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 